Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, fellow time travelers. I hope you're well. To help support the making of this podcast, sign up to my patreon.com site, where you'll get to see me in person from my home in Stirling. Each week, I post a video about history, often where history collides with the present day. Uh, I think it was Mark Twain that said, history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. I've posted videos about billionaires blasting off into space, uh, the Spartans, uh, who inspired the film 300. I've talked about Boris Johnson, his wife Carrie, uh, and the and the link to Marie Antoinette. There's another out there about the Battle of Britain. Anyway, I'm sure you get the picture. It's the history that inspires me and, and, and teaches me things about the world. To get your hands on these exclusive videos, go to patreon.com and search for me, Neil Oliver. It'd be great to see you there. In the meantime, here's the next episode of my love letter to the British Isles. Cue the music. profit in tobacco and there was profit in cotton but it was predicated on the fact that you could take human beings and sell them. In this podcast I'm taking you to meet the all-powerful tobacco lords. Men whose immense profits and huge wealth made them the Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates of their day. Through their trade fortunes poured into cities around the British Isles. Glasgow, Liverpool, Bristol, Dublin. They built great warehouses, veritable cathedrals to commerce. They transformed people and they transformed the cities. But these riches came at a deadly human cost. Every pound and dollar was made on the backs of African slaves. Men, women and children sold into lives unimaginable. I'm stepping out across Britain to discover 100 remarkable places that have shaped you, me and the whole world. I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the British Isles. Hi Neil. In the last podcast we ducked for cover as a warship from the United States of America launched an attack on Whitehaven in Cumbria. Where are we this week? Yep, uh, hostile American gunships in British waters. Who'd have thunk it? But that was some start the special relationship got off to. This week, we're switching our attention from US warships to the Tobacco Lords cargo ships and the vast sums of money they generated in their wakes. It was riches founded upon human misery. And walking here in Glasgow's Merchant City neighbourhood, we're brushing against an infamous, if largely forgotten, past. 
Paul, we're in Glasgow this week, the city that I have a lot of family connections to. I went to university in Glasgow, at Glasgow Uni. Uh, that's where I studied archaeology. Uh, and it's a city that I have been visiting, living in, sometimes working in, more times than I can count over the years. I've had all sorts of addresses in Glasgow in different parts of the city. I don't live there now, haven't lived there for a, a long time, but I'm very much connected to the place. It's a specific part of the city that we're talking about today. It's known as the Merchant City. And it, it refers basically to a, a set or blocks of massive warehouses that were built in the 1700s in an area of Glasgow between, well, say, Buchanan Street and the High Street, built by merchants where they could keep their, their cargoes and, their, and all their stuff. And they're massive. I mean, they're pretty impressive buildings today. So at the time, they must have been, you know, like real cathedrals, cathedrals to commerce, so to speak. And is that in the centre of Glasgow? Yes. Yes, I mean, a lot of people visiting Glasgow, you'd have cause to be on Buchanan Street. It's the main pedestrianised area. Lots of shops and access to restaurants and shopping centre. And, and so when you're on Buchanan Street, you're right at the start. You're right beside where the, where the merchant city starts to take off. Glasgow, I don't know how many people know this, but Glasgow over the years has doubled for New York and other American cities in, in the movies. I think when whatever when when budgets or or maybe logistics I don't know have been challenging and, and getting to Manhattan's been out of the question. Film crews will come and use the Merchant City because the the Merchant City is built on the block grid design, so it's long straight streets and junctions coming off of them at right angles to create regular blocks, and there's good reason for accepting that the grid system that is so familiar in New York was pioneered in Glasgow in the Merchant City. And some of the same architects that were responsible for building in the Merchant City in Glasgow subsequently went to Manhattan and built New York. And so, especially when you're down at street level, this sort of massive architectural presence of, of these big warehouses that have now been, I mean, they've been repurposed long ago into shops and offices and accommodation and so on. But just the mass of them at street level is very suggestive of New York, and so you'll get everyone right up to the stature of a Brad Pitt and whatever will come and they'll film, they'll film sequences that can then be dropped in as though it was happening in New York. So for people unfamiliar with the look of Glasgow, that might give you a, a sense. For people that haven't visited Scotland, they probably know that Edinburgh, the capital, tends to be more famous as a pretty place. People would say that it was the one with all the postcard views and the you know the castle up on its rock and the and the new town and so on, and it is lovely. But Glasgow has some lovely bones as well. The Merchant City, amongst many other parts of of the city, is built in the main of uh, lovely pale sandstone. There's some red sandstone as well. Very elegant, very attractive, and because Glasgow had the reputation of being the industrial one of the two, where the commerce and the industry was. People tended to overlook the obvious, which was it can be very beautiful. I grew up at a time when Glasgow was still very dark, which is to say years of heavy industry in Glasgow. The pollution 
had stained a lot of the buildings dark, sooty black, added to which a lot of buildings were painted black during World War II as part of the blackout. So, so they were, so they were deliberately, some of them were deliberately darkened down to make them harder to see f- from the point of view of bombers. So in any event, my dad's parents are long gone now, but they still lived in Glasgow when I was a wee boy, and we would come up to Glasgow to visit with them. And it was, it was a drive through a very dark city. <laughs> but, but in the 80s, the whole place was cleaned up. Glasgow in the late 80s was uh, the centre for the, for the Garden Festival, and also it was city of culture. I think 88, 1990, at that kind of time. And in advance of it, there was a lot of huge amount of effort was put into cleaning the place up. And it was like seeing a, a beautiful person after a shower. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? They were all, all cleaned up and shiny. Glasgow had had her face washed and was very beautiful. And the Merchant City was one of the uh, jewels in the crown, I suppose. As I say, Edinburgh tends to get all the plaudits for being the, the pretty, beautiful city. But Glasgow, Glasgow is, is handsome in a different way and in its own right. And the Merchant City is definitely a, a very striking very striking part of, of the town. To an outsider like me, there are parts of Glasgow that don't feel like they're in Britain. Yeah, it does. It does have a... It's, I think it's because we're all so familiar, let's say, with American cities like New York because we watch them in a, a countless movies. We all carry in our heads a sense of New York, even if we've never been there. So many, you know, Times Square and, and, and all the rest, it's so recognisable to us instantly. And strangely enough, for the aforementioned reasons, bits of the centre of Glasgow look like that because they have a, a genetic connection. There is DNA shared between Glasgow and, and New York. And, and so I think maybe, maybe your subconscious gets a wee bit confused when you're in certain parts of, of Glasgow into, where am I now? You know, the, the streets, wide, straight streets, the intersections that are at right angles to one another, that familiar grid shape that we, we all know about from New York, First Street, Second Avenue, Broadway, we, we know all about it. And suddenly, when you're in bits of Glasgow, I think you can genuinely get tricked into thinking that you're, you are somewhere else. Um, so I've always been, I was always quite defensive of Glasgow because it got less of the praise it tended for a long for a long time to be a bit overlooked. People would go there for shopping and for other reasons, but they maybe didn't think they were going to Glasgow for sightseeing so much. But it's not fair, because some of Glasgow is, is lovely. And mixed through it, there's all sorts of architecture spread across hundreds of years of, of different traditions of building. And if you catch it in the right angle on the right day, it's stunning. It's stunning. Why was it built on, on grids? It's a good question. I think partly the people involved, the merchants who were commissioning them, they were wanting it done on at a scale, a grand scale, because partly to show off, to make it clear that they were very wealthy and successful. And I suppose when you're looking to accommodate huge amounts of material that's coming and going, either import or export, big square shapes are probably make your life easier. And the streets, you know, nice and wide for the wagons, horse-drawn, of course, that would have been bringing the stuff and moving the stuff. Form should follow function, isn't that what they say? And I suppose, apart from anything else, there were practical considerations, and it was built for function, as well as to look impressive. But the thing is, we should probably get to, to the merchants involved 
They say that Glasgow made the Clyde and the Clyde made Glasgow. The river that runs through Glasgow is the River Clyde. You know, runs out to the sea at the, on the west coast of Scotland. And for the longest time, long after Glasgow had become quite a big place, the river was very shallow. And it was too shallow for ships to come up into the city itself. It was very wide, but there was no depth to it. And so there was a port at Glasgow, Port Glasgow, and everything had to be moved with horses from Port Glasgow into the city itself. And then a scheme was developed, because once there was trade to the American colonies, you wanted ports on the west coast of Britain, of Scotland, for obvious reasons. And Glasgow was identified as being suitable, but the river was not navigable. And so a scheme was put in place to deepen a section, a channel up the middle of the river. So it was made deep enough so that ships could come right up into the heart of the city. And so hence, hence this expression, Glasgow made the Clyde. But then the Clyde repaid all that effort because the, the shipping that came. And obviously the Clyde became synonymous with shipbuilding. You know, so ships were being built and, and moved out. But none of that would have been possible without the efforts that were made to make the river deep enough to take the draft of big vessels. When did that happen? That would be in the... That's in the, in the late 1700s, early 1800s. Glasgow was transformed in that way, in every, in every conceivable way, because of the trade. And so people might have heard of the Tobacco Lords. And that was a, a very small, really, group of men who became unbelievably wealthy by trading with the colonies of North America and that called the tobacco lords because they were in contact with and had arrangements with the colonists who were growing tobacco in places like Virginia, obviously. And they were shipping the crop back to Britain for, for onward passage because tobacco was absolutely the new thing. And there were fortunes to be made from tobacco. The ships carried tobacco on the return journey, but on the way out, they carried slaves, uh, uh, African slaves, because Glasgow, like a lot of British cities, like Bristol, like Liverpool, were heavily involved in the trade in, in human beings that had been sourced in Africa. So there was this, there was this uh, triangle of trade where ships were moving between the African ports where they were collecting people and then they were heading west, full of these miserable cargoes of human beings, men, women and children. The ships were called black birders, and apparently the, the smell from them was so appalling, just of human waste and human misery, that the ships could be smelt at sea from... Before you could see them, you could smell the slave ships. And then they would go across to the eastern seaboard of, of America, they would unload the slaves, the slaves would be sold, and then the ships were reloaded, washed out, loaded up with cargoes of tobacco, also cotton. Those two desirable commodities were then brought back to Europe via Glasgow, via Britain. So it was a trade based upon misery. There was profit in tobacco and there was profit in cotton, but it was predicated on the fact that you could take human beings and sell them. It was just a fact. It was an economic fact of the late 1700s and into the early 1800s. That was what was going on. But the fact remains undeniable that there were huge profits to be made. People will know the, the novel and 
and movie adaptations, I suppose, of Pride and Prejudice. The Austen novel. Well, the romantic lead in that, the male romantic lead in that, is uh, Fitzwilliam Darcy. And Darcy's a fictional character, of course he is. But he would have been, had he been a real flesh and blood person, he would have been contemporary with the Tobacco Lords. He was around and inhabiting the same world. Or, or he would have been if he'd been a real person. So one of the particularly successful Tobacco Lords was a guy called John Glassford. Now, Darcy, as is described in the book, is rich beyond the dreams of avarice on an annual income of £10,000. Right, this, is, this makes all the ladies swoon. The very thought of it, £10,000 a year. Unbelievable. Well, John Glassford, at the same time, had an annual turnover of half a million pounds. Okay, so if a Darcy was rich on £10,000, if he had walked into a room with John Glassford and some of the rest of the tobacco lords, he would have been like a pauper by comparison. So you had these characters like Glassford, like Cunningham, and they were absolutely the Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg wealthy of their time. And, and they used some of that wealth to build the buildings that became and are the merchant city. They were fantastically successful businessmen. And as time went on, rather than slaves, they started shipping out on the outward journeys finery, lovely furniture, tableware, cutlery, the sort of things that the colonists who were doing well on the other side of the Atlantic, in that way of human beings, they, they wanted the best of stuff. They wanted to show off as well. And so the tobacco lord started playing to that vanity and that greed. And they would ship out all this lovely stuff. And they would strike up contracts with the colonists. They would extend them credit. So they would let them have the stuff. On tick, if you like. You let them, you know, fill your houses with this stuff. And when the time comes where your harvest is in and we come with you, we get first refusal. And we'll set the price. And eventually, a lot of the tobacco growers were so in debt to the tobacco lords that the tobacco lords just ran the show. They were dictating prices, they were getting the stuff at knockdown prices and bringing it back and selling it on. Absolutely unimaginable profit. And so that was the nature of the, of the business that made the tobacco lords rich. And of course, Glasgow was hardly alone in it. Liverpool, Dublin, Bristol, they were all part of this. They were all part of this business of moving human beings out and bringing tobacco and cotton and other commodities back and growing very rich on the process. And the tobacco lords left their mark in so many ways, as well as building the merchant city. Street names that are still there in Glasgow are named after them. So you've got streets named after the likes of Andrew Buchanan, Buchanan Street, Archibald Ingram, there's an Ingram Street, James Dunlop, there's a Dunlop Street, Glassford, and there's also places that recall the locations of their plantations. So you've got Antigua Street, Jamaica Street, Tobago Street, Virginia Street. So that industry and those men is fossilised in the street furniture of the place. William Cunningham that I mentioned, he was another extremely successful tobacco lord. And at the height of his powers, he bought a plot of land on what had been up until that point just a muddy track called Cow Lane. 
It was nothing. It was just a track, not surfaced, just a, just a way. And on that, beside it, he built what was then the most lavish and spectacular private home in the city. And Cow Lane was subsequently renamed Queen Street. He spent £10,000 on the house. So, like, all of Darcy's income for a year, if you like, went on building it. And that was his that was his private address in, in Glasgow. And it's still there. And if you visit Glasgow now and you go to the Gallery of Modern Art, better known as the GOMA, G-O-M-A, that is his house. So it was transformed long after his time into a gallery of modern art. And you'll be amazed if you go and see it. The, the thought that it was somebody's private house is just astonishing. And then, of course, Queen Street was established in Queen Street, Queen Street Station. That's where one of the main principal railway stations into Glasgow sits on, is, is Queen Street Station. So they transformed the place. In this context, we're talking about love letters to the British Isles. And I do love Glasgow. And so do millions of people. Glasgow is dearly loved. Glasgow is known to Scots and to Glaswegians as the dear green place. Because there's a lot of there's a, there's an unlikely amount of open parkland within Glasgow. And it's held in deep affection. And Glaswegians are proud of the way the place looks. But that is not to disguise in, in much more recent times that we've all had to come to terms with the fact that like other grand cities around the British Isles, there's this legacy of, of slavery that's there. The merchant city and the rest of it wouldn't have been possible, wouldn't have happened without that trade. So there's a dark side, there's a, a dark underbelly to the whole story. When you describe the slave ships and the realities of the trade, the horror of it really hits home which makes it all the more shocking when you find out that it's still happening in some forms today. Well, yeah, I mean, there's obviously, I mean, people rightly, you know, they make a distinction between chattel slavery, which is what we're talking about here with the, with the African slave trade, which is where people were bought as commodities and were owned outright until the end of their lives or, or until they were sold on, but they became property, which is chattel slavery. And out there, in the plantations and in the colonies, where there was a, a man and woman come together, they would have marriages, they would be married within the slave community, and they might have children together, but their marriage was not recognised by their owners. And if it came to it and it suited them, they would sell a wife away to another owner without the children. Or they would sell the children out from under the mum and dad. Or they would sell the father and so the very fabric of family life was impossible and couldn't be counted upon for the slaves. You Just because you were married and had children, it didn't mean anything in terms of securing your future. At any moment, it was at the whim of your owners to break up that family and sell it off in, in parts. So that's chattel slavery. But absolutely, you know, slavery is of, other, of another sort, is, is among us, where people in all sorts of different ways. Here in Britain, we know there's people coming in, being brought in, uh, young women, girls uh, being sold into the sex trade. They have no control over their own lives and they are, they are essentially being treated as slaves. And we know that the cobalt and for our mobile phone batteries and our laptop computer batteries, most of it's coming out of the Democratic Republic of Congo. 
And the pictures are everywhere showing that it's in, it's men, women and children who are being effectively enslaved and working for nothing or working for the most unimaginably small amounts of money to facilitate the lives of white goods technology that, that we depend upon here in the West. And so it's hard to rationalise. People covet iPhones and smartphones and they covet beautifully designed and made laptop computers, but we know that their component parts are being acquired and the elements that are used in their batteries are being acquired by people who are working as slaves. We know in other aspects of producing the goods that we depend upon, like cheap clothes and all the rest of it, the Uyghur Muslim community in in central parts of China are enslaved. And there's this strange dissonance where we know this in the West. We know it. We know that these goods are being made. The elements for them are being acquired. The prices of them are kept low because that's always the reason for slavery. If you've got slave labour, then you can make commodities that you can sell for a huge profit because your labour costs are low or non-existent. And that's how you get rich. And so in so many ways, as a species, we just haven't learned the lessons. The lessons of, of the slave trade have not been learned, not in any meaningful way. And in some ways, you would have to concede that the merchant city, the, those great cathedrals to commerce, are also monuments to that aspect of human nature. I didn't know, I didn't appreciate any of this properly. You know, when I, I, I went to Glasgow as an undergraduate when I was 17, and I was at Glasgow University till I was 21. I did a four-year degree there. And I walked those streets, Buchanan Street, <laughs> Jamaica Street, Antigua Street. It was all part of my stamping ground. And I, I only had, even then, the, the, the dimmest... I was only making the vaguest connection with what had gone on in the past. And, and I speak as someone who had, had had some of it at school. For my O-grades and hires, we had studied the transatlantic slave trade. I knew about the tobacco lords. I knew about it, and yet somehow or other the real meaning of it, the real significance of it was it was in the it was right off there in my peripheral vision. I do think about it now, that city that I do love and have loved, and the architecture of which it can be so beguiling, it has that legacy. And likewise, Bristol. I love Bristol. I love Liverpool. I've had some of the best experiences of my working life in Liverpool. I've filmed on the Mersey. I've been on the roof of the Liver building. I've been within touching distance of the Liver birds on the roof of the Liver building. And, and I've been warmly received in theatres and whatever in, in Liverpool and Dublin. Dublin again. You know, they're fantastic places. And then we have to, it's necessary that we remember that as well as the bright light that reflects off of these buildings, sometimes when the sun is out, there's a darkness. There's a darkness that will be there for all time. Louis XVI and the French aristocracy found themselves on the sharp end of the guillotine. European royalty was reeling with horror and running scared as revolution swept across France. Britain and others sent forces to try and crush the new republic. In 1796, the French launched a response, a three-pronged invasion. In the final phase, soldiers of the Black Legion 
landed in far southwest Wales to begin what was to be the last attempted invasion of these isles. Next time, in my love letter to the British Isles. To help support this podcast, which is and always will be free, and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment videos every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. It would be great to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter. And please write a review of this week's podcast and share it with your friends. For further reading about these favourite destinations of mine, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the British Isles in 100 Places and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the British Isles is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Fat Belly Films. Music is by Malcolm Goldie. The social media producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. Finance is looked after by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Althorpe Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. And special thanks to the people across history who have made and continue to make these isles such an incredible place. This has been an FBF Podcasts production. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.